Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 165 with Adam Kahane. Adam brings his experience as a person who's brokered deals, negotiations, collaborations with arch enemies who've drawn weapons on each other and boils down his lessons learned into some great stuff you can apply when you've got to interact with folks that you don't care for and do some collaborations. So you're going to learn one, why conventional collaboration does not work anymore. Two, the three stretches required from collaboration and three, what to do when you can't collaborate. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items referenced here, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep165. And while you're over at awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope you'll check out some of our cool resources and goodies. One of my favorite undervalued resources is the little magnifying glass for search, which is right up there in the menu bar at awesomeatyourjob.com. And it lets you search through the transcript of all 165 guests we've had thus far. So if you got a challenge that you're dealing with at your J-O-B, you can probably just type that in and see what you see there. Or if a brilliant guest said something that you forgot, you just got to remember a couple words and poof, you go right to that episode where they're at. So I think the magnifying glass is an underrated and valuable resource there over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Here's Adam's story now. Adam Kahane is a director of Rios Partners, an international social enterprise that helps people move forward on their most important and intractable issues. Adam is also the author of four books on solving tough problems. His latest is called Collaborating with the Enemy, how to work with people you don't agree with or like or trust. Now, here's Adam. Adam, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's a pleasure, Pete. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, I have too. And you have a really fun perspective having been in some interesting situations and challenges across the world. Could you maybe share with us a key anecdote? I was struck by the one about South African leaders in 1991. Well, that was my first experience with the kind of work I've been doing for these past 25 years. I was uh, happily working in Shell in London in their planning department and the South Africans wanted to use the shell planning methodology to think about the transition from apartheid to democracy and asked for somebody to provide technological assistance or technical assistance. And as I was the the youngest and most expendable member <laughs> of the shell team, I was dispatched. And it really was my first experience working with people who'd been literally shooting at each other, people who'd been on opposite sides and in prison and in exile and underground trying to change things, all of whom knew things couldn't stay as they were, but who didn't at all agree on what the problem was or what the solution was. And for me, it was a very surprising experience to see that if you approach it in a certain way, even people in such disagreement could work together and find a way forward. It really blew me away. Oh, excellent. And so that 
experience has shaped some subsequent philosophies and work and approach. Can you tell us sort of how that's played out in the rest of your life? Well, the big impact was I was so impressed with what I saw there that I ended up quitting Shell and moving from England to South Africa and marrying the project organizer. But There you go. <laughs> which had a pretty big impact on me. But beyond that, I think the main thing I learned, which has never left me, is that it is possible just to know that it is possible, even in the most stuck and complex and conflictual situations, it is possible. Doesn't mean it always works, doesn't mean it's easy, doesn't mean it's straightforward, doesn't mean it's quick, but it can be done. And that's what has inspired me ever since. The first trip I made to South Africa, I heard a joke that perfectly encapsulates what I've been working on for 25 years. The joke is, faced with our unbelievably difficult problems, we have two options, a practical option and a miraculous option. The practical option is we all get down on our knees and pray for a bound of angels <laughs> to come and sort this out for us. And the miraculous option is we continue to talk and argue and work together and figure it out ourselves. And that's the inspiration which has guided me for the past 25 years. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. Well, so then now you've shared a number of your learnings and perspectives and principles along the way in your book, Collaborating with the Enemy. Can you share with us kind of what's the main thesis or principle at work in this work? Yeah, when I really reflect on this work I've been doing at all kinds of different levels, in organizations, in cities, in countries, what I have concluded is that collaborating, working with other people, working with diverse others, people we don't agree with or like or trust, is both increasingly necessary and at the same time increasingly difficult. Okay. And what I realized in thinking back on my experience is that the conventional way of approaching such situations, conventional collaboration, simply cannot work. And if we want to be able to deal with such situations, if we want to be able to work with people we don't agree with or like or trust, then we have to approach the work in an unconventional way, which I call stretch collaboration. Now, can you expand upon that a little bit? That conventional collaborations cannot work. Can you give us some examples of those collaborative approaches that are conventional and why they're just not going to cut the mustard? Well, there's an approach to collaboration which is so common that most of us think it's the only way. We imagine that collaborating means we're all on the same team, we're all trying to get to the same place. We figure out where we want to get to, what the goal is or the vision is. We agree where we are. We agree the plan to get from here to there and who needs to do what. And that's it. And the number of times we can do that is diminishing. The number of times or the situations where that will work, where we really are on the same side, we really can't agree the plan, we really can't agree what everybody needs to do, that just 
doesn't work very often anymore. People have their own ideas. They have their own interests. The situation's changing too quickly. People won't do what other people tell them to do. And so that conventional approach sounds good, but it works less and less of the time. Well, and I'm intrigued. I mean, I imagine in one context, I'm thinking on the international scene of conflict or development, we got NGOs and the United Nations and governments and business leaders, you know, all with their own vested interests and differing stakeholder preferences and needs and values and interests. I see that there. But you're saying, hey, even inside, say, a team in a given company that this too is dwindling? Well, the only time this works, or the basic assumption behind conventional collaboration, is that you can be in control. So Mm -hmm. if you're in a situation where you can control, or the boss can control what people think is important, and what they're going to do, and what the goal is, and what the plan is, then this will work. But I think more often than not, even in a team, people have their own ideas, they have their own understandings, they have their own interests, they have things that are important to them, they have affiliations, connections, and they'll say yes, but they'll pretend to go along, but I don't think it works very often. And it certainly doesn't work in rapidly changing situations where people have a choice. You need people to be creative. You need people to be committed. They're not robots. You can pretend they're robots, but they're not. Oh man, this is kind of spooky. And I think you're really hitting on something here. They'll pretend to go along. And so how might I see that pop up in terms of people pretending to go along? What's that look like in practice? Well, what it looks like in practice is that I say yes, Mm -hmm. even though it doesn't make much sense to me and I don't have much energy for it (laughs) and I just don't do it or I do it. I drag my feet. I said, oh, I didn't know that's what we agreed to. Or maybe like a minimum level of compliance. Like I technically gave you the thing that you asked for from me, but it's not really done done or valuable enough to meet the needs that was the intention behind doing it in the first place. Well, or yes, I'll do what we agreed, even though I don't actually think it makes much sense. And I won't, if you don't want my view about what would really work here, and if you're not going to allow me to try it out, then I'll go along. But it doesn't mean we're going to get where we want to go. Okay, understood. Well, so then what's the answer? How can we make the best of the situation? Well, I think... The answer is to abandon the illusion of control. Okay. We can't control other people. We can't control the situation. We can't control what's going to work. And so pretending we can is not helpful. So what does it mean to abandon control? It means three things or three stretches. It's three ways of stretching beyond this contracted, constricted, robotic place. The first stretch is to realize that there's going to be conflict. There's going to be differences in ideas and interests and what's important, what we think's important, and 
what group we really feel part of, to just recognize that these conflicts are inevitable and abandon this dream or this fantasy of harmony. And accept that working with diverse others, people who know their mind, people who've got rights, people who've got their own views, is going to involve connection, yes, but it's going to involve conflict. And accept that and enjoy it. So that's the first stretch. So stretching beyond harmony and the illusion of oneness. You know, it's like in a marriage, a marriage, you're one, but you're also two. That's just a fact. Yeah. You're not (laughs) one instead of two, and you're not two instead of one. They're both true. You're together and you're separate, and it's like that everywhere. So that's the first stretch. The second stretch is to abandon the notion that we can figure this all out before we start. We don't know what's going to work in anything but the simplest situations. And so we're just going to have to try out what we think will work, do an experiment, and see. And take it one step at a time. Feel our way forward or experiment our way forward. So abandon this illusion that we can plan the whole thing out and then just execute it from what we thought at the beginning. It never works like that. Again, people can pretend it works like that, but it never does. All right. I think it was Mike Tyson said, no strategy (laughs) survives the first time you're punched in the nose. I was just talking about that yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you can think you know what's going to happen, but you don't know. Nobody knows, right? So you got to just take it one step at a time, feel your way forward. And the third stretch, I think, is the most fundamental one. What I realized when I thought about my own experience with working with diverse others is I spent an awful lot of time thinking about what other people ought to be doing, what my colleagues ought to be doing, what my clients ought to be doing, what my suppliers ought to be doing, what my family ought to be doing, what my neighbors ought to be doing. And it's kind of a entertaining way to spend your time. It requires me to be doing nothing, but it's actually a complete and total waste of time. Spending your time thinking about what other people ought to be doing is a complete waste of time. And so the third stretch is to abandon this idea you can get other people to do things and focus only on one thing. What am I going to do next? That's the only thing worth worrying about. What am I going to do next? Okay. Well, I love this. It's clearly coming from the voice of experience with some years and years and many, many clients and situations and those realizations. And it's humbling and powerful at the same time. So I'd like to dig into each of them with a bit more detail. In terms of the first one, when it comes to embracing conflict and connection, you know, accept it and enjoy it. Tell me, you know, if someone is not a fan of conflict and they find it uncomfortable, they feel it on the back of their neck or in their belly, conflict. It's not at all something they enjoy. How could folks begin to appreciate what's going on here? Well, everything I'm saying here, everything I'm writing about, everything I've learned is from having tried it another way and fallen on my face. Okay. So... 
yeah, you might not like conflict. You also might not like the winter living in Montreal, but that's the reality of the situation. So if you don't like dealing with different people, you, I don't know, you could move somewhere where everybody agrees with you. I don't know where that would be. Or you could work on your own in a little cubicle somewhere or in a monastery. But my point is that avoiding the conflict doesn't make it go away. It's there. The differences are there. They're ubiquitous. So learn to deal with it. My big learning about conflict, speaking as somebody who is very conflict diverse, my big learning about conflict is when you get into it, it's never as bad as you imagine it's going to be. All right. You're not going to die if somebody disagrees with you. You're not going to die if you have an argument. You're going to actually feel liberated because this thing that you knew was there and you were pretending wasn't there can be acknowledged and worked with. Okay. And so when you say accept it, enjoy it, you know, that's kind of what you're talking about is kind of a relief or a release type enjoyment. Yeah. And the creativity and the innovation and the change that can come from difference and friction and being able to make your way forward in spite of the fact that you don't all agree with each other. It's called dealing with reality. Okay. All right. And so then when you talk about experimenting the way forward, sort of that second stretch there, what are some practical ways that one can sort of put forward experiments and get a sense for how things might work out or what the reception of an idea or proposal or product or plan or something is going to be in sort of a lower risk and high learning, high information coming back sort of a way? Well, let me give a simple example of this, which I use all the time, which is what I call suspending my assumptions or suspending my ideas. I've got an idea about something. I've got something I think is right or I think will work or I think we ought to do. And rather than just arguing it, saying this is the truth, I suspend it like it's on a string in front of me. And I say, this is my idea. I think this is a good idea. What do you all think, my colleagues or my clients? So I release this tight hold that this just has to work. This just has to be the truth. You have to agree with me. We have to do this. And to say, this is my thinking about this. What do you think? Can it work? Let's try it. What's the feedback? And this curiosity that comes from suspending your ideas rather than holding them in this iron grip. And the chance to learn early on what makes sense and doesn't make sense, what works and doesn't work, what people will go along with and not go along with, rather than forcing it through and then having a much bigger and more expensive problem some weeks or months down the road. All right. That's very simple. It's just a matter of getting other people's input up front. And so you're able to suspend it in the sense that, you know, it is not you. It is not like exactly. if someone says this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Adam, you're not thinking, oh, I'm so small and worthless. Right. Now, that's exactly it. Part of suspending is allowing people to object to it without objecting to me. But also it's to hear that feedback early on 
rather than telling everybody to just shut up and go along with it and only find out later that this thing doesn't work, actually. So it's this curiosity and willing to try stuff out, whether it's try out an idea or an innovation or a customer offering or a way of approaching things. You try it out small and you listen. What's the feedback? What are clients or colleagues or partners saying? How can I improve it? What can I do next? How can I feel my way forward one step at a time? Not knowing what's going to work. We just don't know what's going to work. So how can we be more tentative, more humble, more attentive to what's the world telling us about this thing we we want to try out? Oh, that's great. And you have a fun turn of a phrase I enjoyed. Can you share what you mean by listen for a possibility? Well, what you're trying to do in these complex and conflictual situations, you're trying to find a way forward. Uh, what typically happens in these situations, what happens more often than not is we feel confused and frustrated and stuck. So we're looking for an opening, a possibility, a crack that we can try, huh? I wonder if we tried this, whether it would work. Well, not really. What about this? What about this? What about this? So it's this idea of feeling your way forward because we rarely, well, almost never, have this situation where we see the whole way forward in front of us, what it's going to look like for the next year, two years, and we just can decide and plow on. Most situations aren't like that. So how can we take a step get the feedback, what's the next step, and approach it like that. Okay, thank you. And when it comes to the third stretch here of stepping into the game and putting zero mental effort or attention on thinking about what others should do and all about what's your next action, do you have any key principles or sub-questions or rules of thumb you use to kind of prioritize and determine what is your optimal next action? Well, for me, the key rule of thumb is to notice when I am wasting my time with thinking or arguing or admonishing or trying to force people, other people, to do what I want them to do. And when I became alert to this, I noticed wow, you can spend many hours every day <laughs> doing that. I think it's a very typical reflex because when I do that, I'm off the hook. If only those other people would do this. You know, I learned this. I was once involved in a very, very complicated project, lots of stakeholders. It was in India, something to do with malnutrition and very complicated project. And I got totally confused. And I asked a, a friend of mine in total frustration, I said, what are we doing here? And he gave me a very good answer that has stuck with me. He said, look, Adam, whenever there's a complicated situation with lots of different people involved and you bring them all into a room, 100% of the people enter the room figuring if only those other people would change, we'd be fine. Now, if we're all here, it's not possible that it's all somebody else's fault. And so he said, what are we really doing? We're getting to the point where people see what they need to do differently. 
So that's the key thing. The key thing is to notice when I'm wasting my time focusing on what I wish other people would do and to ask the difficult question and sometimes very challenging question, what do I have to change in how I'm looking at this or how I'm approaching it or how I'm doing things or relating to people? What can I do differently that would allow me to see a possibility and to find a way forward. The good news is when I make that switch, suddenly I've got all this energy and I'm not frustrated and I'm not waiting for other people. I'm now in control. I'm in control of what I do next. So it's a wonderful, energizing, liberating realization, but it takes some discipline because the conventional thing about bossing other people around is so ingrained. And when you talk about what is it that I can do next is, <laughs> I just want to make sure we're clear here. Is it cheating or violating the spirit of the rule here to determine, well, what I can do next is present this different persuasive argument. It's kind of like you're saying, well, no, you can't make anyone do things. So it's just a matter of changing your perspective or finding new opportunities for common ground. No, I don't think that's cheating. Sometimes okay. what I need to do next is find a different way of working with that other person and a more effective way of convincing them. So sometimes it's like that, but it's really not usually the case that if I just explained it again mm -hmm. more slowly in words <laughs> of one syllable or with a louder voice that they'd say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, sometimes that'll happen, but not much of the time. So the question is, aside from trying to berate my colleagues another time or force them to do something, what could I do differently? How could I approach it? How could I explain it? What could I try? What could I do on my own? What new allies could I find? What's a way to experiment? What can I do next? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, so now I'd love to think about this from the perspective up close and personal in a workplace. Are there any sort of nuances or quick tips or tools or tactics or scripts or things that you think would put some of this into play if you're dealing with a difficult boss or colleague who is frustrating you in, in these kinds of ways? It's a person that you don't agree with, like, or trust what would you say would be kind of some of your very first steps in addressing the situation? Well, what I argue is that the very first step is to figure out whether you want to collaborate, whether that's actually what you need to do. And I argue, actually, you've always got three or four options. You can collaborate, which is what we've been talking about this last 15 minutes. And it involves all the things we've been talking about. But it's really important to realize that that's not the only choice. And so you have two or three of the following other choices, and you need to be clear-headed and not romantic about this. So one choice, which you have some of the time, is you can try to just force things to be the way you want them to be. Not always. Sometimes you don't have the power to do that. But sometimes with cajoling and threatening and pushing, you can get things to be the way you want them to be. So that's the first alternative, forcing. 
You don't always have that option, but I want to articulate that option because that's actually what most people do if they can. They may do it in a nice way. They may do it in a sweet way, but basically they're just trying to get other people to do what they think ought to be done. So that's the first alternative. The second alternative is to adapt, to say, I can't collaborate with this person. I can't make them do what I want them to do. I don't have the power to do that. I don't have the capacity to do that. So I can adapt. I can go along to get along. I can try to make things as good as they can be in this situation. You know, I have to adapt to winter. In Montreal, there's not much I can do about it. I got to have a warm parka and I got to walk carefully on the ice. That's all there is to it. And there's another option, which is also worth articulating. I can exit. I can not work on the project. I can get a divorce. I can move to Florida. I can quit my job. So we always have these four options, collaborating, forcing, adapting, and exiting. So what do you want to do? And I'm not saying you always have to collaborate. I'm saying the very first step is to figure out what are my options here and what do I think will work? What I'm trying to do with this book is if you want to collaborate, if you think you need to collaborate, and I'm arguing this is true more and more of the time, how can you do it effectively? Okay, thank you. Well, Adam, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, let's go. I'm up for it. All right. How about a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, I read an article a few years ago where somebody was interviewing the Dalai Lama, the the Tibetan spiritual leader, and they were questioning him on the way he was approaching China, which is very controversial. And he had a wonderful answer, which I really live by. He said, Holistic understanding brings wise action. So that's what I think we're dealing with here. If we can understand better what's really going on, we can have a a wiser idea about what to do about it. And that's what a lot of this is about. How can I have a wise idea about what I need to do? Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite study, whether it's an experiment or a piece of research? Well... I'm maybe a bit unusual in that I really learn just by walking into brick walls. Okay. (laughs) So almost everything I've learned is not from figuring it out or not from reading in a book, but of trying something. I thought it was a, it doesn't work. And then I pick myself up and I say, what happened here? What was I doing wrong? So this book is basically just a litany of failures. All the things I thought were one way and found were another way. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Well, early on in my corporate career, I was very inspired by a book written by Art Kleiner. It's called The Heretics. And it's a wonderful history of people in organizations who've tried to make a difference. And he calls them heretics rather than apostates. In the church, an apostate is somebody who rejects the church and walks away. But a heretic is somebody who's loyal to the church, but wants to change it. And uh, he has a very inspiring book about what it means to be loyal and to try to make things work from inside the organization. Well, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? 
Well, my favorite tool is suspending this idea of I'm going to tell you what I think and I'm going to state it as clearly as I can, but I'm not wedded to it. I want to hear your feedback on it. I'm willing to change my idea, but I'm going to put it out there. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to pretend I don't have an idea, but I'm going to take the risk of showing you what I think and what I want so that I can get feedback and learn. Okay. And let's see, that was a thinking tool. How about a habit of personal practice? I guess that's also a habit. Well, that's it. The tool, my favorite tool that I use so often that I'm often accused of having some kind of financial interest in the 3M company. (laughs) My favorite tool is post-it notes, rectangular yellow post-it notes, because it's a great tool for suspending. It's a great tool. You write down your idea and you slap it on the wall and you say, this is what I think. Now, how is it related to what you think and what's other ways? So this using post-it notes to make the thinking visible That's what I use more than anything. And making the thinking visible, whether it's flip charts or post-it notes or Lego bricks, this is so much more effective than just putting words into the air. Okay, thank you. And how about, is there a particular nugget or articulation of your message that seems to really get people nodding their heads, taking notes, resonating with what you're saying? Well, I've relied a lot on this quote one of the final speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. before he was assassinated. He said, power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. And for me, this really summarizes a crucial thing. We can't just push for what we want. The result is reckless and abusive. But nor can we just say we're all one when we're not simply all one. It's sentimental and anemic. And how do you constantly use both, both power and love? Thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you recommend they go? Well, I have a website as part of our company website. You can go to adamkahane.com, A-D-A-M-K-A-H-A-N-E.com. It's got how to contact me. It's got free downloads. It's got my different books. It's got links to the work my colleagues and I are doing using these methods. So get in touch. I'd love to get your feedback. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, it's that you can do more than you think you can do. And in particular, it is possible. It really is. I've seen it with my own eyes. It is possible to work with people you don't agree with or like or trust, but it requires you to stretch. It requires you to stretch beyond what's habitual and comfortable, but you'll be amazed at what you can accomplish if you do. All right. Adam, thanks so much for taking this time. It's been a blast. Thanks, Pete. Thanks very much. I really connected with that piece Adam shared because it's a theme that's been coming up again and again. Maybe you've noticed My big learning about conflict is that it's never as bad as you imagine it's going to be. And that happens on both sides of the conflict. If you're the leader or if you are the follower, the leader has to give some tough feedback or the follower has to deliver something. They don't know how it's going to go. Well, it's usually not nearly as severely, brutally 
terrible as you might imagine it to be. Because apparently smart, creative, capable people like yourselves, I'm not just patronizing or butter you up, but really I think there's research on this, at least David Allen, episode 15, cites it. They're all the more capable of imagining spooky scenarios to freak yourself out. So if you are catastrophizing about a potential conflict and how you're going to speak to it, that just means you're a genius. So that's the happy interpretation of that. And the even happier implication is that it's probably not going to be so bad. So you get that going for you. So again, if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we referenced here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash app165. And I do hope you'll join us for our next episode. That is number 166. We're talking to Bernadette Jiwa from Australia. And she has some perspective on how intuitive creative leaps happen and how to get more of them. So I hope to catch you then. And peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 